This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 140 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. Many leadership initiatives in education need to come from the top, but change can happen when direct service providers emerge as leaders on their teams without waiting for permission from someone else. School administrators and other people making decisions at the district and policy level are constantly pulled in different directions. The further up the chain you go and the more people you're managing, the longer it takes to make things happen. But good leaders want their teachers and therapists to come to them with ideas and show initiative. In fact, they often need their team members to show this leadership. But this can be scary to do if you don't see yourself as a leader. When I first considered adding the school administration credential to my doctoral program, my initial gut response was, I'm not cut out for that. Seeing myself in that position seemed really difficult, and I don't think this experience is unique to me. When people don't pursue career transitions or leadership roles, it's often not because they aren't interested in the work. It's often because they don't think they'll be successful or they aren't sure what their options are. It's both a confidence issue and a clarity issue. That's why I wanted to invite Meg Nyman to the DeFacto Leaders podcast to talk about working in education and the tech world, as well as the concept of an alter ego. Meg Nyman is a facilitator and founder of the Alter Ego Project. Her session, Design Your Alter Ego, Who Do You Need to Be?, was one of the most popular workshops at South by Southwest in 2023. She works with companies as well as individuals to bring play, creativity, and curiosity to professional and personal development. Meg was a user experience designer for 17 years in San Francisco, Seattle, and Philadelphia. She worked for Microsoft, Fitbit, Leapfrog, and many startups. Prior to tech, Meg taught elementary school with Teach for America. The Alter Ego Project blends Meg's expertise in design thinking, personas, and creativity with her passion for helping people pursue a more authentic life. In this conversation, Meg shares what it was like working with Teach for America and why teaching is the hardest job she's ever done, how she transitioned from education to tech, and how to leverage transferable skills and experiences. We also discuss why many K-12 education problems are really just human problems that also exist in other agencies and fields, how team members can separate work-related disagreements from their personal relationships outside team meetings, 
And then we wrap up by talking about the Alter Ego Project, how to use alter egos to decrease burnout, level up in your career, and live a more intentional life. Before we get going, I wanted to talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. I've gone through quite a bit of my own exploration during the time that I designed the School of Clinical Leadership. I actually had several different things that I tried before I put them all into one program. So obviously I did have my programs that addressed things like social skills and executive functioning. And I also had programs that focused on leadership. And the School of Clinical Leadership is really just a culmination of all of those things. Because I truly believe that when you are addressing things like social skills and executive functioning, which go together, we can't really be successful in these initiatives if we don't think of ourselves as leaders. So over the course of the past year, I've really experimented with how I explain the program to other people. We really need to be good leaders if we are in a related service provider position and we want to get some of those supports in place for our students. And part of being successful with this kind of work really comes down to seeing yourself as a leader and really changing the way that you think about your role and yourself. And so the concept of an alter ego really falls in line nicely. So that's why I think this conversation will be really valuable to you. So to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. The first portion of this conversation, we really get into the different fields and how education teams and tech teams, how there's so many different parallels between the way that teams work in both of those industries. And then at the end, we really talk about the alter ego and how you can apply it to your work in education. So be sure that you stick around until the end. To learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. And now please enjoy this conversation with Meg Nyman. Today, I am joined by Meg Nyman from the Alter Ego Project. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really a joy to, to be able to talk a little bit more about the Alter Ego Project, which is truly a passion of mine and share a little bit of my journey from classroom teacher through the tech world and then onto this project that I'm fully focused on now around empowering people, helping them find their authentic voices, really stepping into their power. So why don't we start there? I I know that, um, like I said, when we talked before, I looked at your website and got an idea of what you're doing now, but you really have a lot of really interesting experiences. So why don't you just, let's start with having you share where you, where you were before, like what's, what's been your whole career story up until the work that you've been doing now? For sure. Um, I like to say that I went away to college and that was sort of where the map ended. I, I knew I wanted to go to school yeah. <laughs> and I was firmly undecided as an undergraduate until I found cognitive science where I got to um, take every class that I wanted to take and get a degree out of it. And um, so I studied cognitive science with a focus on psycholinguistics and basically graduated not not knowing what in the world I should do. Um, and so I joined Teach for America 
mostly because I had tutored as a high school kid to make some money. And I always liked children in general. And I thought, you know, maybe this will be my career. I don't really know. Um, and so I had the, the joy and the challenge of teaching third and then fourth graders in the San Jose, California area. Um, and what I, to this day, is the hardest job I've ever done. So just know that I say that to everybody. I, I was on multi-million dollar accounts and I shipped Xbox One. I've done oh, some wow. big things. Teaching was for sure the hardest. So just know that and I will stand by that probably uh, to my to my end. Um, and I, but I, I, I both love the classroom and it just didn't have enough of the, uh, give and take of my soul and sort of refilling my cup to make it sustainable. And I had to have that hard conversation of, you know, I'm not enjoying being in the classroom and I don't want my kids to have an unhappy teacher. Mm -hmm. Felt like it was a disservice to them. So I kind of left teaching and wasn't sure what to do. And I got a really lucky break um, with a job at leapfrog. And I was, I, I made it. It's one of my favorite products ever. I made, uh, the fly pen top computer, which taught kids, uh, in fourth or sixth grade to do multiplication and division using the pen to actually like teach them how to do the, um, you know, the, the steps of long division and the steps of two by two and three by three multiplication. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really taught me how to be a user experience designer. So I then embarked on a 17 year career in technology where I basically was the translator between what people wanted and what the engineers built. So um, I like to describe my role as uh, when you think about a construction project, um, you have the, the people who are actually in construction and you have the four person, and then you also have an architect. And so I was more of the architect who was really figuring out what needed to go where and where should a bathroom go that would be logical for people and what size and how many bedrooms and what do people really want and where where do they want the view to be um, and then sort of put those into drawings that then the engineers would actually go and implement. Um, and, and in that time, I think I never really lost my passion for helping people. Um, I was in a number of different business you know, divisions. And I, I worked at Microsoft on Xbox. Um, I worked on some self-driving cars. We can talk about all the wild ways that technology oh, wow. is going. Yeah. Um, but it, it never really fed that need for me to be helpful and to empower people. And as a teacher, I really believed in um, the, basically, I, I believe that everybody has not just a gift, but but value and has ways that they can both be lit up and be contributors. And I was a bit fierce advocate for some of my kids that had needed additional interventions because I really wanted them to be successful and everybody needs different things in order to have their success. And so I just sort of had this moment um, and we can talk a little bit more about exactly why alter egos, but I had a moment about two years ago where I, I just realized that the tech work was, was continuing to not be as fulfilling as I needed it to be. And I'd stumbled, across, I'd stumbled upon alter egos to help me through a really hard transition where I, in the span of six months, uh, my seven-year marriage dissolved, 12-year total relationship. Um, I was laid off and I ended up moving from California to Pennsylvania. So I had a lot of change and alter yeah. egos helped me through that um, and helped me move into a new chapter of my life. And I decided that I wanted to teach other people how to use them um, in, 
in similar types of transition. And what I've now found is that they're also helpful when you just might feel a little less engaged than you want to mm-hmm. be, or yeah. you're sort of looking for your mojo, you're looking for that drive again. Alter egos can really help you find that and tap into it when you need it in order to be effective, to um, have the confidence and to have the um, the passion that you need in order to really do the work that you're meant to do. Yeah. So I, I have so many questions and I for sure, obviously, we're going to touch on alter egos and how it can be applied to in education. I do have some other questions about some of the the different experiences that you've had just and just what it was like, because I know that there are a lot of people who are listening and myself included here that, uh, you know, just considering all those different career transitions. And I can certainly relate to the like you're working directly with students and you know that you're doing really important work, but it's not, I I describe it as where you're like scratching an itch and you're not quite on it, but you know that you're sort of in the ballpark of what you want to be doing where you're like, this is the, this is the mission that I want to be behind, but maybe this isn't quite the role that is, is the place that where I can be the best and the most helpful use my skills, use what I like to be doing. And, you know, all of those types of things. Um, My, one of the things that I always found challenging when I was working in the school systems was where it's like, you're really, it's really tactical. um, Sometimes in the weeds where it's, or you're just, you're just very micro and there's all these macro things. So, I mean, you went to something a little more macro where you created a product you know, a lot of times I know that teachers are like, or, and therapists as well, where it's like, you're in, in the weeds working with your students and you're like, oh, I would love to be able to create a product that could help so many people. Um, so I don't know, I guess I can relate to a lot of those things. So my question, let's see, where do I want to go first? Can you just share a little bit about Teach for America? Because I know other people who were did the same thing where they weren't sure what they wanted to do and they went and taught for teach for America. So can you just share a little bit about that organization and and what it's about? Sure. Um, So I did teach for America in 2001. I am an alum who pays some attention, although I think that the organization has likely evolved and changed a little bit since I was involved. The mission of teach for America and sort of the, where it started was this idea that, um, we have a bit of an education crisis in this country. We have a shortage of teachers and there's a desire or there could be an interesting path for people to almost do like Peace Corps locally Mm -hmm. in education. And so it's this idea that you do a two-year term of service. Um, It's it's the idea that if if you're passionate about education, if you're passionate about educational equity, if you're passionate about um, everybody deserving a right to a good, uh, quality, informative, helpful, useful education um, that you can do your part by doing two years. And they provide some amount of training. It tends to be people who don't have an education background. Mm -hmm. And so I also will be totally candid that um, there are, I'm not a, a, a diehard Teacher America is the only way. I can see that there are flaws in the way that it's set up. So for example, when I did it, 
um, California was having so much of a teacher shortage that they were very happy to issue emergency teaching credentials. Mm -hmm. And so for my first year, I was on an emergency teaching credential, which basically meant I had uh, a college degree and I passed a couple of the critical tests in order to be a certified teacher, but I didn't have the training. And then I did a year long um, some people, it was two years, I managed to do it in one year, uh, California, like sort of teaching certificate through San Jose State. So I do have uh, a full teaching certificate, I was able to clear it. So I am a, a fully accredited teacher. Um, but that what that was the requirement for my region, other regions were doing different things. Now, I think most people do end up getting a master's in education mm-hmm. as part of their Teach for America commitment. Um, but one of the other sort of challenges within it is that a lot of people do leave the field. They do their two years um, and then they carry much like I do this respect and um, understanding of how important education is and also how difficult it is in this country and how it is underfunded, how teachers are not respected the way that at least I believe they should be. And honestly, all the people within the schools um, I carry with me, which other people, you know, people in, in nursing professions and other sort of shift work I think get but when you are not allowed to go to the bathroom when you need to go Uh (laughs) because you are in a classroom of children that are your charge that is a very different way of looking at work than what happens when you get into a tech job and and I just don't want to ever forget that and I, I think it's it's really important to understand just how much we're asking of our teachers so that's what Teach for America did for me and I stayed for three years. Um, I stayed an extra year, uh, really kind of wanting to see what was going to happen um, and whether I whether I was happier teaching fourth. I, I kind of like looped with my kids, but I went mm-hmm. from 20 kids to 33. So it was a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, the other thing that people don't always understand about Teach for America that I'll just mention is they are basically a placement agency. So I was a full teacher at the Alum Rock School District I was laid off just like every teacher who wasn't on an emergency credential after that first year. I was rehired because they still needed teachers. Yeah, I got moved and I was at three different schools. Uh, I was part of the union. Um, I, you know, I was on payroll with Alum Rock. I did a third year because they didn't care that I was Teach for America. I was just a teacher who had two years of experience and went into a third year and was basically renewed every year by policy. So you are you are a teacher. In, yeah. in the school district. And Teacher America is really there to provide additional support, to provide that initial training, to be a network. Um, I did get my first tech job from a Teach for America alum. So it is sort of this community, but um, it, it is a real teaching experience. You you are a teacher in, in the school districts in which you're placed. That's interesting because I, I, didn't, I didn't think of it as a placement agency, but it's really just kind of the, almost like a... Um, What's the, a distribution network in a way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no money ever changes hands between Teach for America and the, and the core members. Mm-hmm. They, they might help with a loan when you first start, if you don't have your um, first paycheck and you need to get a, a, you know, living situation, but yeah, you are very much in direct um, relationship with the school district in which you are employed. Yeah. I've heard, I mean, I've heard really good things about it. I know people that have worked there and then I actually have a friend from college who is a school administrator now. So she did stay with it, but I, I'm trying to think of what her teaching or what her background is. Obviously she was 
that's that's always a great story when they when people stay in but yes. it's great also when people can find a different way to use their skills but still be benefiting education in some way which i know that you were able to do in the next stage of your career so um with I, a lot of people are doing that now a lot of people are leaving the classroom and it's like you know i have mixed feelings about it because i get where it's like you want to be able to use your skills in a different way. Sometimes you feel like, well, I'm impacting this group of kids, but also I know why it's hard for me and my, and other teachers to, or, you know, therapists, which, which is what I was, um, you know, it's hard for these people in the schools to do their jobs well, when they don't have access to good materials and good curriculum and, um, and things to recommend to parents and so, and then also there's this, oh, well, there's these other options. I can go work for a curriculum company or a tech company. So it does sound really interesting and enticing as a, a way to kind of make a career pivot or a shift for a lot of teachers. And so I know that there are a lot of people making that jump right now. It's huge. I mean, the ed tech space is just there's so much going on there right now. Um, and I know that you made that transition. Like you said, it was 17. What, what year was that when you made the transition? Uh, 2004 was my first tech job. So okay. I was really, yeah. yeah. And so the UX is something that has come up. And I know that there are, uh, there's some skepticism among the people who are in these, these therapy positions, because it's like, are these products really, are they good quality curriculum? Are they teaching the right skills? Are they doing it in a way that is um, ethical and healthy from a um, a neurological standpoint? So can you yeah. share a little bit about what that was like <laughs> on that? Because you were a, a, a like with the, with the UX side, it's not the same as thinking about accessibility, but it is like it's there's some overlap there. There there is. And so. What I will say, I'll, let me just say a couple of things. So one, for people that are trying to transition out of teaching or from speech pathologists or other things like that, I think that th there was this matrix in what color is your parachute years ago oh, yeah. that I cannot find again. I don't think it's in the current version, but it's stuck with me and it's helped me every time I have tried to make a career transition. So I'm going to offer it to, to everyone here, which is that you look at what your current job is. And so, for example, I was a teacher in elementary school. So I was an educator in, in, a, in a classroom. And you look at where you want to go. So I wanted to be a UX designer at a tech company. But the jump from teacher in a classroom to UX designer at a tech company is actually pretty hard to make. There's, yeah. there's transferable skills, but it's not super clear how you're going to go from one to the other. So you have two choices. You can become an educator at a tech company mm -hmm. and then become a UX designer at said tech company or another tech company, because at least you now have the, the proof that you know what tech companies are about. Or you can be a UX designer at an education company, which is what I did. I became a UX designer at LeapFrog, where all of my pedagogical knowledge and my real world classroom experience came directly to bear because I was working with similar kids. And we did things like kid testing is what we called it, which is user testing, but with um, kids, but with with kids and after school programs. And I yeah. knew how to talk to fourth graders because yeah. I had fourth graders. So that 
education experience and even understanding what the math standards were, for example, was highly valuable in that role when we were actually creating that product that wanted to be close enough. I mean, what I would say too, is like the company matters. So Leapfrog yeah. is a very well-respected brand. They hire people who are literally curriculum specialists. They tend to hire former teachers. They have a real commitment to education. And part of what they want is to be, um, you know, known for being age appropriate, for being academically appropriate, for being a, a contributor to healthy development. Yeah. I'm not throwing any particular companies under the bus, but there are definitely just in just as in they are in healthcare, they are in education where people are seeing an opportunity, but don't fully realize all of the regulation and standards and truthfully research and truths that exist in the field that should be respected. And so I think when you're doing the transition, it's also important to find a company that aligns with your values. And if you have subject matter expertise, you wanna make sure that that's respected at the company that you go work for. That being said, when I was at Fitbit, we would actually have doctors on consultation. We had sleep specialists who worked with us as we were designing some of the sleep functionality because it was another company that really did believe in the research and wanted to be accurate and appropriate and informed. So I think that's a, a key part is to really find companies that align at that values level and some do and some don't. Some are really just trying to break the system and do things differently and there's something kind of amazing about that energy of trying to do something totally different. But I also personally believe, and that was part of the reason that I left teaching was like, I was like, I am their fourth grade teacher. This is a huge responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And if these children don't get what they need in fourth grade, you know, and we know third and fourth grade in particular are really critical years, especially around literacy, like they're going to have trouble for the rest of their lives. So I took that 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 obligation and that responsibility quite seriously. Um, there are other people that are much more of the opinion, like the system's just broken, and so we should throw it all out and start over. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm much more a middle path kind of <laughs> yeah, person. I'm, yeah. I'm all for innovation, and I think there's a lot of ways that the system is stuck in an old way of thinking about things. But I also don't want to fail an entire generation of students because we've forgotten some of the basics. So that would be my my suggestion is, is one, to leverage as much as you can, including the role that you were previously in. And then I'll just say one other thing is like, I actually built a career in voice design at first. So mm. I actually was doing Siri and Alexa before we talked about Siri and Alexa. I was doing directory assistance when you called 411 and swore at your phone because it didn't understand you. That was, that was me. I apologize. Um, <laughs> well, you have again, to, you always have to start out with the first iteration of things. You have to start out, but it leveraged what I knew because yeah. I had a psycholinguistics background. So yeah. to be in a space that was really focused on words and how people process language made perfect sense. So I would just really encourage people to think broadly about if they are going to leave the field, where they might be able to go. Two more things that I just want to mention. And um, if people listening want to talk about career transition, that is not my main focus, but I am always happy to talk to others since there aren't that many of us who have done what I did. So yeah. and feel free to reach out to me. Um, okay. So I had, a, yeah, like a, as you're talking, I have so many different things that, because this is, again, this is my life the last year with just trying to figure out 
and honestly, the last 10 years, you know, how it like you kind of figure something out for a while and you you think, okay, I'm going this way. And then you do it for a few years and it's like, mm, okay, it's right. It's time for the next stage. And I, you know, I don't know that that means that you were wrong in what you picked. Maybe it was just, it was just a, like a stage. I mean, everybody has the stages and, and I think it's normal to do that. And I don't know that it's encouraged as much with people who work in the school systems. I know with SLP specifically, it's like you go and you be an SLP and you, you do therapy and like, sometimes you switch settings, but the whole idea of transitioning and making a shift every couple of years, which is totally normal in corporate and tech, it's not done as much in the clinical, in healthcare, um, in teaching. And yes, teachers can switch grade levels. That happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen as much. You know, you know, teachers who it's like, I've been teaching fourth grade for 30 years and I've been in the same school and, you know. Um, There's nothing perfect. I've done a lot of different iterations of these. And so I do think that it is finding the fit that feeds you the most in your current state and in your current stage. And so, for example, in tech, there's this notion that you, you know, dream up this product and you get to ship all the time and things are incredible. And oh, yeah. I'll tell you again from that very first leapfrog job, I walked in, they had this proof of concept. It looked great. It seemed like it, it covered all the bases. And I was like, what are we going to work on? And nine months later, we were still building the damn thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is this messy middle part and there is a slog even in technology that is fast paced and all these things where you're just figuring out all the little details. And you might think that we live at that high level, but the truth is the devil's in the details. And I can't tell you how much minutia I've had to spend time on that gets very frustrating in every single version of error scenario and things like there's a lot of tiny little things that seem almost like they don't matter, but if they're not there, then you're not complete. So I think that it really is, everything has its benefits and its negatives, but I, I'm i not the biggest fan of people jumping around every single year. I think that there's something to be said for sticking with something and going mm -hmm. through a few different shipping cycles and, yeah. and really getting to, to see not just it go out the door, but then the, the impact of that and how you improve it for the next time. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree that even when I went into teaching, I had this voice in the back of my head that was like, what if you love this and this is your only career? That seems wrong. You know, so I think that there definitely happens, especially when you hit midlife of just like, is this it? Is this what I want? Is this satisfying? And whether it's a full scale change or whether it's finding a way to be a consultant like Leapfrog and Fitbit hired on to help out with some of these other products where it might not be a full-time job, but you're at least trying out something new mm -hmm. or it is finding innovative people to bring in new modalities and really like, I think part of what makes careers in education in particular so challenging is there's this a lack of agency and a lack of feeling like you can impact the system and feeling like everything's being done to you, but mm -hmm. not feeling like you actually get to do much. And so if there is any shift or ways that people, and that's one thing that I would say alter egos could help with, to bring breathe new life into it, to bring in a new modality, to, to, to stand up and say, you know what? We've been doing this for 10 years like this, and I think there's new ways to do it. How can we infuse something new? How can we do a trial of a, of a new methodology? How can we bring in an expert from the outside so that we get some new ideas? You know, all of those things take money and they take buy-in and they're not 
easy to do in large systems, but they're also ways to re-up your own commitment even in, in place, you know, rather than having to full, full sale change careers. I wanted to take a quick break here to talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. One of the key takeaways that I had from my conversation with Meg is the idea of K-12 education problems really just being human problems. So the fact that we all need to work together as a team, and yes, we do all have competing interests, and there are a lot of moving parts. And if we are in a role where we see something needs to be done, we can be that person who steps up and leads and shows that initiative, but at the same time, respecting the other perspectives on the team. So that means shifting our perspective. Instead of just thinking about the direct intervention component of what we do as therapists, we can also think about how we can support the other members on our team. And when we are thinking about supporting social skills, supporting executive functioning across the day, it's really important that we think about the whole team and our role within that team. And that's what I help you do in the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership is a program for related service providers that helps them to put executive functioning support in place. So I give you an entire framework for how you can do this kind of work in your direct therapy, as well as how you can train other people on your team and support them in implementing some of these strategies across the day so that students get the support that they need. To learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. I understand what you mean with the, the idea of, so, you know, you have a school team where everybody is, you have your school administrators who are working to supervise the delivery of services and education and all of the related service providers, or you have the, you know, the tech team, like my, my husband's a product owner and he's managing a tech team of developers and, and UX people and business architects. So it's, I mean, it's not the same, but it has some similarities where there For is sure. still these macro and in the weeds kind of things. Um, and you know what? I mean, I think just having this, this um, talking to people in different industries, it not only helps you to figure out, are there ways I could use my skills, but also just an understanding. And this is, I guess some of my frustration with, you know, like, again, the people who are like the system is broken, it's never going to be fixed, just having an appreciation for all these different moving pieces that are working together, like, um, you know, talking to somebody at a curriculum company that's like, um, you know, I like I, I have had a guest recently who was a math curriculum expert who's now a school in a school supervisor position in curriculum, but worked in the tech space for a while and was like, we have researchers, we have curriculum experts, and then we have developers who can actually put this together. And so there's a lot of people who are really skeptical. And it's like, hey, there are all of these, these pieces working together. It's not just, you know, being thrown together willy nilly. And, and then as trying to do it myself as a business owner, where people are like, why can't you just add, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, you should add this feature. And my, my response is always, like, thank you for the feedback. I'd love to do that, but it's me and an assistant. And um, I'd love to be able to have like this whole built out suite with all these accessibility features, especially with the work that I do, 
or, you know, I'm doing a lot of online trainings where it's, it's a little bit easier as a single person team to roll out a course. But when you're, when you're talking about tech products, just the amount of work it takes to get these basic features in, like, it's just, um, I think it does like to me it's 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 both overwhelming but also encouraging because just to understand how everything works. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one other thing that I think people don't fully realize is that there there often is a lot of research happening at these tech companies. So yeah. user researchers exist and people who have some sort of um academic background that involves uh whether it's psychology or I don't know all of the things that go into a speech pathology uh, sort of background, but if if you have that researchy kind of mind and, mm-hmm. and you know how to both elicit data from individuals as well as from academic and other sources, yeah. that can be a real asset at a company like a tech company. Um, that can be a real asset to probably a lot of different companies. You know, the, the other trend right now is that every company has sort of become a tech company and the some of these basic things around like user research has nothing to do with tech it has to do with what people want and need and what's going to help them yeah tech may or may not be the solution to that um so there's definitely ways to kind of leverage those skills and and bring it in other places but i think that to your point around so two different things one is some of the ways that tech companies had advocated to work have just pervaded business. And I think there's often this gulf between business and nonprofits and like the education sector. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely something to be gained from even just looking at how they run things, whether it's the cross-functional team with a product owner, which is such a key role that most educators have probably never heard of, but it's Mm -hmm. basically like, who's going to make sure that all the pieces are in place so that this thing goes through. You can even imagine like at an IEP, there's somebody who's in charge of making sure that that IEP finishes. That's essentially the product owner. Mm -hmm. Um, but, th- you know, knowing that these roles exist can be helpful, knowing that there are things like lean methodologies around just like the tiniest little bit, and then you build on top of them, that can be really helpful. Knowing that tech companies often work in sprints of like two week spurts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you just chunk it to try to make some progress. So especially for those that feel despondent, like, oh, the system's never going to change. I get that. You know, there are tech companies that are like, there's no way we're ever going to build an electric car that is that drives itself. And then you're like, well, what's the smallest little thing that I can do that moves me towards building an electric car that drives itself. And then, you know, eventually probably still a number of years away to do it safely and ethically, but you get there. Um, So that's, that's definitely a key piece. And then I think another piece that is true in tech companies and likely isn't as nuanced and maybe as looked at in something like an education setting is there are a lot of different roles and every and there and those different roles are managed in two different different two different ways often you're on a team of other people like you i was a ux designer on a team of other ux designers but each one of us was deployed to a feature team that had engineers and product owners and quality assurance people and marketing people and you know all these different folks working on that one feature. It was this very cross-functional team where my job was to advocate for the user. The engineer's job was to advocate for the tech solution that was 
the quickest with the least amount of effort or was the most, you know, there were lots of different things they were optimizing for, but they knew what their role was. The product owner was there to make sure that it met the other business requirements. The marketing person was there to make sure that whatever we built was actually desirable and that they could sell it. And so you'd get into this room and sometimes it would get kind of tense because we are all advocating for the different things that we cared about. But we also knew that we were all there for the greater good of that product and the feature and the company. And I think there's something around that dynamic that could be that 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 is similar to what happens on an IEP team, or that is similar for what happens for the the broader group of people that are all supporting an individual child. Um, and so you're you're both playing your role and leaning into your specialty, but also kind of have this acknowledgement and sometimes have to have that conversation and even a difficult conversation with the other folks to figure out how you can all sort of move forward in the time that's given with the resources uh, allowed. Um, And it doesn't mean that you always get everything exactly the way that you want, but you try to find that through line that gets you um, closest to the goal. And you also start to learn what are the things that you really have to advocate for and what are the things that you, that aren't as critical in terms of the overall success. So I don't know that that's truly like a, a mind shift or like a huge change for folks, but I just want to acknowledge that it's everywhere. These problems yeah. are everywhere. These yeah. situations are everywhere. Humans are humans everywhere. And so, you know, it, it is about finding whether it's in your current role or in the next role, which might be easier for you to find that place. It, it, you're still sort of having to grow the same skills. You're still having to work on the same things. You're likely still going to encounter some of the same challenges. Um, and so it is really just sort of like, what's the right place for you at any given time? And then how do you build those universal skills that'll help you in every position because they're part of being a human communicating with other humans. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think that as much as there is value to being, you know, in one, one field, one setting, one industry, and really knowing that it, you know, it makes your brain be flexible when you have to think about the parallels between the two. Um, And I I can see a number of different ways this could translate over to school teams where it's so again, the whole idea of a sprint and we're all working towards a goal and a project and we all have our roles. Like, um, you know, you were saying the advocating on the role of the user, like advocating on, like you could be a a therapist who is trying to get accommodations implemented. Well, like are these accommodations and these, features of these intervention strategies working for the student. And then you have an administrator who's the the LEA rep that's saying, do we have the funding and the resources to be able to deliver these things? So it is very similar. So there's, it could be applied to specific students, but then also when you have these committees that are trying to roll out these big curriculum initiatives as well. So it is, it is very similar in that there's lots of different roles lots of competing interests. And I think the competing as interest and the respect for the competing interests is something that's lacking. And, um, and, you know, again, maybe sometimes when I get into my little like professional circles, it's like the same ideas bouncing around and it just feels a little siloed off where it's like, Hey, you know, the, the administrator who's making this decision about whether or not this program should be funded probably has a lot of other people who are asking, you know, asking them to you know, again, like the competing biz- business interests um, that you're having to think about at, at tech companies. So 
um, just that level of respect and understanding that everybody, like everybody has their thing that they are advocating for. And you can't really get your, like, you can't just go into a team and feel in like with the idea of, I have to get my thing done because everybody yeah. feels like that. Yeah. And I think one other thing that I want to just raise, because it does relate a little bit more to the work that I currently do with Ultra yeah. Egos is I certainly found as a heart centered kind of person um, that I was very identified with being a teacher and with that, just that sense of responsibility to really serve my students. And I think that like on the one hand, that's really powerful to bring your innate, um, you know, your, your heart filled piece of yourself and that identity forward in your job. And I think at the same time, it can be limiting because then you get injured and you get upset when you don't get your own way or yeah. when things don't go the way that you sort of were hoping rather than having some of that distance to say like, okay, I didn't, I didn't win that argument, but I can, or I only got half of what I was hoping for, but I can see how this is overall beneficial. And I can take that back and figure out what I could do next time. And so really kind of there's an opportunity. And I, I saw this when I was at the tech company, like I remember being in this very contentious meeting and these engineers were going at, like it was close to yelling, like they were really, really angry at each other and really at loggerheads. And I don't even remember, but basically we sort of walked out of the room and I remember the room just being like full of energy. And as soon as we walked out the door, these two engineers looked at each other and they're like, hi man, you wanna go get a beer? Like I'm ready to call it a day. And it blew my mind because they were still friendly. They still respected each other. They still wanted to be in each other's company, but they had done this like really sort of intense advocacy at the same time in the room. And I'm not the fan of necessarily like yelling at each other and things, but I do think that there's something around like, I am playing a role. Mm -hmm. I am trying to do this strategically. I am doing this consciously. I am doing this for a particular aim. And whether I get it or not, I have done my job and then I get to be a person who is not that thing. And so that's part of what, you know, whether you do it through an alter ego or you do it through other sort of mindfulness practices, really trying to like separate your own self-worth and your own heart from the work that you do can actually be helpful because it lets you see it more objectively. And you can be like, okay, right. As a speech pathologist in this role and in this meeting, what is the optimal outcome I can get for the committee, for the child, for the district? And then whether I fully get that or I get it at 20%, I know that I've made my arguments. I know that I can go find some new research for the next time and I can go home and feel like a whole person still rather than being like gut-wrenched because yeah. you've been denied. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so I, you know, this happens in tech, like I got burnt out. Like there's lots of ways that, especially if you're a heart filled kind of person, if you're a bit of a people pleaser, if you like to play by the rules, which a lot of people that go into things like education do, you know, we're, we're very set up to, uh, get kind of all of ourselves invested and then really take a lot of it home. And so finding whatever way you can to have that separation and just realize that it's a really important job, but it is a job. And it isn't not isn't it isn't everything of you, um, and that that boundary can actually be, um, it can make you more effective. Yeah, 
I can think of a time and this is, I think the idea. So, so one, the whole idea of being in that role in that meeting and not taking it home with you. So there's that part of it. And then the idea of the relationships that you have with the people on the team, that that can also be separate. And I have seen in many situations, both in business relating to my profession um, and even just like on school teams where that leaves the meeting and that impacts the relationship of those people where it, it becomes personal when really it was just about the role, the, the, the goal, and we're sitting here having this negotiation about how this plan is going to be rolled out and not everybody's, you know, people aren't going to get everything that they want. I've seen that, you know, go very poorly, but I have an, an, another situation. There was a special ed director who was sharing how they had this, this meeting about, it was their philosophy on um, accommodations and modifications in special ed. And there were these two people that were just, again, just really having this heated discussion in this meeting, but then it stayed in the meeting and they just, you know, again, we had this really close friendship. And I think it's great when that happens. I do see at the different levels and different roles that as people level up in their careers, um, especially when you're thinking about public sector work where politics, like it, it's hard for it to not get political because you are talking about grants and funding. And so it's hard to completely avoid politics where you have to, if you're in public policy, work with people who are have different political beliefs than you or um, work on a team with somebody who has a different philosophy about inclusion or, you know, instructional strategies. Um, and so and I've seen that as people are more successful, they're able to do that that whole like, here's the meaning, here's the goal, here's this thing we're working on, but we leave it there and we're gonna go, you know, have coffee afterwards or go golfing or whatever whatever it is that people do together afterwards is that that, that seems to be a quality of people who do uh, have that success and able that ability to level up. And so it is, we're 40 minutes in and we still haven't really, I still haven't really given you the opportunity to fully explain the alter ego. So. I want to make sure that we have time for that. So yeah, no, <laughs> I was just thinking you started to touch on it, but let's, let's get into that before we wrap up. Totally. And I think it really segues actually really well into the last bit of conversation because, you know, we are adults and there is something about being intentional and sort of consciously creating the way that we show up in our work lives and knowing that it is a role that we're playing. So with alter egos, the whole thing is we've been sort of sold this lie that you have to be the same person everywhere. Mm -hmm. And if you just think about it, I guarantee you that you are a different person with me here on the podcast than you are when you're on vacation, than you are when you're with your family celebrating the holidays. Mm -hmm. Those are just all different sides of yourself show up. And so this is just a natural thing that we do. What I do with the Alter Ego Project is to help you bring your best version of yourself to each situation. And we do that by actually consciously creating this alter ego. So an alter ego in my definition is just another side of yourself. A lot of times it comes out unconsciously because you are letting your hair down when you're at the beach and that's a different version than when you're trying to be a formal educator in a, a public sector position, yeah. uh -huh. obviously. 
Um, there's always that story of like the teacher that gets embarrassed when they're buying the six pack and their kid yeah. isn't, you know, it's like, oh gosh, wait, is this okay? Um, so you're already navigating all of that. But often what happens is you're navigating it without a lot of intentionality and without a lot of consciousness. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what would it be like if you actually stepped into that role or that meeting, bringing a, a, the best version of who you could be as that advocate or as that um, you know, service provider um, that you've actually given some foresight to? You've actually mm-hmm. thought about who they want to be. You've thought about who you know that's doing it effectively and you've stolen some of their characteristics. So when I do this work, you know, the 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 one that comes up most frequently is Beyonce and Sasha Fierce. Sasha Fierce is amazing. In my view, she's really she really helped uh, Beyonce step into her sexuality and her power. She also helped her explore a bit more like electronic music and mm-hmm. moving musically even in a different direction. And then Sasha Fierce famously retired, sorry, Beyonce famously retired Sasha Fierce and integrated her back into herself. Hmm. There are other people um, that turn these on and off. So there's also, Serena Williams has like five different oh, people. Wow. She becomes a, um, she becomes Summer, her her personal assistant. And there's this video from like 2012 called Serena and Venus, I think, or Venus and Serena. And um, she's literally like, hi, this is Summer. I'd like to talk about the Williams Invitational and she's organizing like the Venus and Serena Williams Invitational but pretending to be an assistant rather than herself and she's literally getting a massage done and like signing Nikes at the same time Mm -hmm. so she's it's it was amazing um so she's invented these different people and she has like five of them that that show up in different situations for what she needs and she's got a silly one and she's got the one who yelled at the line judge who's gotten her in trouble and gotten her fined and she tries not to let her show up as much but she's ruthless <laughs> you know and 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 it's great and it's playful and it's fun and it lets you sort of breathe new life into what you're doing and um so i also had somebody that i worked with recently and he was really just feeling like he was bringing like 30% of himself to work. You know, he was just feeling like he knew he had more passion. He knew he really cared about it, but he just couldn't muster the energy to bring it. He was feeling very beaten down. He was feeling very just like in a rut. And we found this persona that was just kind of like, uh he just had more confidence and he had more fun and he had more swagger and he was just like this guy to the max and it immediately helped him remember why he got in the game in the first place he started to light up and I just got a message from him and he was like I've been bringing this guy to the job interviews and it's going so much better and it's making me rethink how I position myself as a whole and it's making me really figure out what I truly value in this next role. And so that's sort of the opportunity is like you bring this conscious point of view and it it can go a lot of different ways. I have a number of different offerings, but really it just follows the design process and starts with a problem that you have. We think about what would help you uh, in that problem space. And then we create a person that you can turn on to bring to that critical meeting or to bring to your relationship so that you're a kinder person or to bring to your child so that you're more patient, can use it anywhere. But I think especially in the context of people who are feeling a bit pulled away from their job, feeling a little bit downtrodden and just like they've lost their mojo and they've lost their energy, 
it can really help rekindle why you're there in the first place and give you strategies for how to stop doing the same thing over and over again, but actually infuse new life into the work that you're doing and, and, and literally be more strategic about how you show up. Yeah, I could see. So, and then people who are on those school teams, and this is, this is teachers, but I mean, I can think of a more of a therapy example where you go into that role thinking my job is to, to, to deliver therapy. And then you get in there and then you, oh, wait, so you're a case manager. Um, you are a parent advocate. Um, you're an advocate for the child. And then also sometimes you get pulled into these other duties where you're having to be a hall monitor or, um, and then you have to run a meeting. And then also, wait, um, there's all these things that need to be done in a classroom. So now you need to be an instructional coach and step into some of those leadership roles. And I think that um, in my my journey, when I was in the schools, I realized that, yes, there is this part of I'm working directly with the students, but also, and this is partly because I knew that I wanted to make a career transition. And this was advice that I got when I was looking into school administrator positions where they're like, we want you to have experience with X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, how do I get that experience right. without being hired for that position? And um, advice I got from my former superintendent was you just create those situations for yourself. Yep. And you, so you have to just kind of see yourself as that leader and, you know, see yourself as, you know, creating this project where you get to be a school administrator in your current role as a therapist. And I think that this is not even just for people who want to officially be an administrator position, because a lot of people don't. A lot of people really yeah. like to be working directly with students, but they just want to have more autonomy and control and be seen as a leader and not siloed off. So totally. how do you see it being applied to a situation like that, where there's somebody who's working directly with students they are seen by their coworkers as this person who works in this office doing therapy sessions and pulling kids out for, you know, whatever it is that they're working on. And they want to be seen as an authority, a person who they can, that can be, a, you know, a coach for and a mentor for other people or that can yeah. um, advise on bigger picture curriculum issues. Like, how do you, how do you apply this concept to something like that? Yeah. So. I'm going to walk through four sort of things that I, I would suggest. So it's going to start a little bit before, but it's going to move into the actual implementation. So here's what I would suggest somebody like that does is first off, just start looking at how you show up today in different situations. So are there places where you're feeling that leadership organically? And it might be totally outside of the school but it might be in your community. It might be that in your college friends, you were always the one who made the decisions, but just start to like look around and you're looking both for proof that you're different in different situations. And you're looking for little sniffs of that thing that you want and mm -hmm. just sort of reminding yourself that, oh yeah, it's kind of in there. The second thing is when you get into that situation where you want to be in leadership, but it's not really happening, Afterwards, pay attention to what didn't go the way that you hoped. And you can ask yourself, what would have helped? And I find that the prompt, if only I were more, really helps. So if only I were more assertive, if only I had more conviction, if only I were more outspoken, if only I had more research, whatever it is, but like what's missing? And then this is where the real actionable parts come 
Who do you admire who has that? So if you want to be more of a leader, I don't care if you have channeled Oprah Winfrey. I don't care if you channel Michelle Obama. I don't care if you channel Beyonce. I don't care if you channel your mother, who was the best PTA administrator you've ever met. Mm -hmm. It does not matter. It can be somebody on, you can, you can channel the girl from Brave. You know, it can be somebody in the movies. It can be somebody, but who has it? And what can you borrow from them? And and here's the fun part. If you see it in them, it's it's honestly in you too. And it just hasn't been expressed. And then one of the biggest shortcuts is asking what would they do? So I'll give you an example from myself where I moved from being a UX designer to being a product manager. And I wasn't totally sure how I was gonna do it. I'd seen other people do it. And so every time that I was a little fumbly, I would just say, what would Ryan do? Ryan was the best product manager I ever saw. I had a ton of respect for him. I really liked how he did it. And I'd worked with probably tens of or twenties at that point in my career, but he's the guy that made sense to me. And so I just kept saying, what would Ryan do in this situation? And it helped so much. So, you know, as you go in and you want to have more leadership, it's like, what would Michelle Obama do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's fun. I love that. And, and it gives you that chance. And then, you know, there is an extra piece of like strategically starting to engineer how you can do the leadership, but you'd be shocked at how much of a difference just that energetic change in yourself brings. Mm-hmm. And, and the secret is nobody else has to know. Nobody else has to know. But you could take like literally a little slip of paper and say, what would Michelle Obama do? Stick it in your pocket. And every time you're wondering and getting ready to speak, you touch your pocket and you're like, okay, right. I got Michelle on now. Or you can, you know, same thing of like, I'm going to be more assertive and you can just write assertive or assertive Amy, just make up somebody and you like put them in your pocket again. And then you just sort of touch it and you're like, right, that's what I'm going to try. Um, I have lots of other ways and suggestions. And one other piece of advice that I would give to everybody is try it first in a lower stakes environment. It's a little hard to just jump straight in there. So try it at the coffee shop, try it with a friend, try it with your peers before you go like straight to the, the key thing, like my friend who was using it in his job interviews, we did a lot of play beforehand, but <laughs> also like, you know, you're free to just try it. And if it goes sideways, that's okay. You, you have permission to do it wrong. You have permission for it not to totally work. And you have permission to see what parts did work and what parts you want to tweak and then try a new version. Like that's part of what's fun about this is it doesn't have to stay Michelle Obama. It can morph into Martine whoever, you know, like it it can, and you have little flavors of Michelle Obama and little flavors of your mom and little flavors of other things. And eventually it becomes your own. Um, But it's just a way to play. And, and it's, it's shocking how much that shift in energy can really, and that shift in mindset can really put the needle um, and get you unstuck. Yeah. I really believe that the, like the, the magic happens when you blend the, the mindset with the strategy and tangible Mm -hmm. things where you just, cause I think that sometimes people tend to go too far in, you know, like I know people who are like doing all mindset stuff and I'm like, well, you have to go do something, but then some important, and I'm, um, I'm the other way around where I'll just be like, driving forward and feeling like garbage. And it's like, wait, we need to pause a little bit and put some of that stuff in, not forget the the real, you know, the, the tangible things. But even those things that you said, 
if you are more of a strategy um, action person, um, you can put it into your operating procedures. Like remember to ask yourself the questions and make yourself pause. That yes. can be part of your process to make you slow down and do it. And so it like, I, I just think, I mean, it's kind of a hack to get yourself to slow down a little bit and be more mindful if you don't, you know, if that doesn't immediately sound appealing to you, which I know that for some people who are just like drivers, it just, it sounds fluffy, but it can be really effective when you do it the right way. Yeah. And I just think that like, they're agree. People sit on both sides and I flip between the two, but if you're driving with the, the pedal to the metal in the wrong direction, yeah, or the, that's the not gas, necessarily the helping. gas and accelerator at the same time. I, yeah, the gas yeah. and the brake at the same time is is all sure. that I've been working yeah. with for the past two years. Yeah, um, it, it it is a frustrating experience. So yeah, taking that little breath and just being like, okay, wait, what am I trying to do again? Yeah, um, yeah. even though even though it feels like you're going to run out of momentum and you're never going to get back on it, can be really helpful just to like, you know, like have faith that you will, uh, that, that slowing down a little bit to go around that curve is really okay. <laughs> and then yeah. you can accelerate again. Yeah. Driving is a really great metaphor. I think for a lot of the ways that we, we live life and you can really make somebody, um, car sick by being on the gas and the brake all the time. You know, it's kind of nice if you can smooth out that ride a little bit. So. Yeah. Like yourself. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, um, like, I mean, I think if I can think of some people that I've wanted to emulate, like a, like a Tim Ferriss or something like that, he has a lot of these things where it's, it's the questions too. So even somebody like that, who's known to be more, you know, analytical, strategic, a lot of the people who are very successful are doing this kind of work. A hundred percent. I mean, and Tim Ferriss also knows how to run hard, you know, so he's really figured out both of those pieces, but yeah, there's a lot to be said for not just taking the space, but I at least really believe that we have a lot more answers than we realize. And I certainly also was somebody who lived in my head for a long time. And once I started to find mindfulness and other modalities that slowed me down and got me more into my body, I realized that there was some really nice synergy there. So agreed, this can sound woo. Um, There is research behind it. It's not totally out there, Mm -hmm. but it it, it may not be for everybody. And also like take as much or as little as you want. Um, because it, it's really just a frame shift and there's plenty of, what I will tell you is there's another guy doing this work too. He works with Olympians. He's the one who helped Kobe Bryant get the black Mamba. Like he works with the elite of the elite and CEOs and famous people and they all have alter egos. So yeah. it's not, it's not just the yoga teacher on this call who's telling you about it. It it also comes from somebody who works with high performers looking for their best self. Uh, if, if that speaks more to you, by the way, um, his name is Todd Herman. He has a book called The Alter Ego. Oh yeah, Effect. yeah. And we are doing very similar work. I, I came to this on my own and um, we are arriving at similar conclusions, but we approach it from very different energies. Mine is much more from a creative, playful, let's just see what happens. Let's get weird and sort of silly. And his, I feel is much more at a like, kind of what is your best self and how can you bring it out and sort of unleash your superhero. But Mm -hmm. there are, you know, as with anything, there are often multiple ways to get there. So, um, you know, use whoever makes the most sense. I am the alter ego project instead, because mine is always a work in project progress, just like ourselves. Yeah, well, and like you said, with the research, I mean, there is research behind things like 
um, hypnosis, visualization. Um, and a lot of it, if you really tie it back, there's some similarities with, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and the questions yes. that you would ask in there. So, um, so yeah. Um, but I know that we have been going for a while. And so um, where can people find out about you and yeah. how they can connect with you and learn more about what you do? For sure. So the easiest way is to go to alter ego hyphen project.com. So just put that little hyphen in between alter ego hyphen project. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I, I post a ton under my own name. It is Meg Nyman. I am the only Meg Nyman in the world. Uh, oh, wow. so, and, <laughs> and Nyman is spelled N I M A N. Uh, there is no E. Um, and then you can also reach me at Meg at nymandesign.com. Um, but I am, I'm generally findable and I love talking to folks and especially people who are doing really important work. Um, like anybody who's working in the schools, you will always have a dear place in my heart and I'm happy to share what I know and be a resource, uh, whether it's about alter egos or just life in general, because I really do want people to be fulfilled and happy and doing the work that, is, that they are meant to do in a way that really, um, lifts up the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. I can't, I can't wait to see where you go with this because as we talked before, there's, there's a lot of applications and ways that we can use it. So I'm excited yeah. to see what it turns into. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and um, hope that this was helpful to some of the folks that are listening. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the places you can go to connect with Meg. And if you are a related service provider and you want to show up as a leader on your team and support your students' executive functioning, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership at drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, it helps me so much if you share, rate, and review the De Facto Leaders podcast. If you have a suggestion for a guest or if you would like to be a guest on the show, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.